Where do you get your ideas? Right here. All this is my magician's toy shop. I'm Ray Bradbury. This is Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Clink. And I am Mr. Dark. You're not Mr. Dark. I am Mr. Dark. Saying you are Mr. Dark does not make you Mr. Dark. Oh, yes, it does, my friend. No, it, no, it doesn't. I am the carnival owner, formerly known as Troy Darkin. I mean, Harkin. i I'm now Mr. Dark. I'm, you may call me Troy. Call me, call me Troy, your liege. Uh, okay, forget it. Just call me Troy. Parkin, okay. Parkin's fine. <laughs> um, so before we go much further with this, what will be an extraordinary episode because it's all about Ray Bradbury and his amazing novel, um, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and we're going to be joined by uh, an amazing guest as well. Um, I just want to do a little bit of house cleaning and a little bit of uh, uh, mea culpa-ism, um, or as I would should say, something like Maya culpa or something, because, man, I have been screwing up a lot of things. And um, one of the things that really I was just shamed into correcting right away before we get too far is, yes, I called Sunnydale from Buffy Sunnyvale repeatedly for some reason. Um, I think I actually tried to um, um, check it on the internet and I saw, oh yeah, there's a place called Sunnyvale in California. That must be it. Anyway, so yes, I know, I know, I know, I know it's Sunnydale, not Sunnyvale. And I know that I should also probably get something like a swear jar going um, for my use of the word nice. I've said nice so often that it would really be better if I use some form of profanity than just constantly saying nice. Also, there was uh, a period during one of our recent uh, podcasts where David is making some excellent points. And my contribution to these excellent points is saying, I think, six times in a row, that's right. That's right. And it was, it was very James Stewart of me. I could just hear him like, you know, why, why that's right, Zuzel. That's right. That's right. Anyway, I will try to stop that kind of shit right now. Stop with the that's right and with the nice. So there's that. That's taken care of. My apologies. Um, also, we want to let you know some, some good stuff that um, two old farts, we are getting out there. We are getting out there in the land of the interwebs. Um, we should now be available to you and all of your friends, um, through whatever podcast network you prefer, um, have a look for us and, uh, subscribe and like, as they say, um, because, uh, we want to be one of your faves and we want to, uh, know who's listening. Also, we're on Twitter now, so, um, you can be in touch with us via the Twitter sphere um, uh, using the handle at two, that's numeric two old farts 
sci-fi, or you can just search for us on Twitter as too old for farts, not forts. I did that early on, didn't I, David? No, I said, in our first show, I said, too old farts take sci-fi. Anyway, and, and earlier today, I wrote too old frats, which we are not. Anyway, look for us. We're out there. Um, and we're glad now to have partnered up with the uh, Captivate uh, FM people. And um, so tell a friend and do please subscribe and like. Where are we off to now, David? Oh, we should also mention that we have a Facebook group as well. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. Now, this is our 13th episode. Lucky 13, my favorite number. So this is our 13th episode of our first season. This is our last episode of season one. Uh, oh, oh David, to- sorry. Before, before we go on, can, I, can you say that one more time? And let me, I'm going to, maybe I'll throw in like a, uh, a howling wolf sound or something. Okay, let me hear you say it. And this is our 13th episode of our first season. Perfect. This is our last episode of season one. We may do a wrap-up show, call it episode 14, or call it a hat, or a brooch, or a pterodactyl, or call it late for supper, but... Fembot! This episode, episode 13, is ostensibly, and I use that word, ostensibly... Okay, that's bad. Let me take it from the top. No, don't have time for that. It is ostensibly our last episode of season one. Today's episode looks at something wicked this way comes. We are recording it on Saturday, September 11, 2021 for broadcast on Saturday, September 18th. We have a special guest, poet and writer Sandra Kasturi. Before that, Mr. Dark, I'm sorry, Troy, will give us a spoiler alert. Indeed, I shall. Oh, well done. I commend your pains and everyone shall share in your gains. And now about the cauldrons sing like elves and fairies in a ring, enchanting all that you put in by the pricking of my thumbs. Spoiler, spoilers, this way comes open locks, whoever knock. Thanks, Mr. Dark. We are recording this session via Zoom in the interest of transparency. Troy and I have both known Sandra for decades, and at Real Mr. Dark has known her for much longer than that. Sandra Kasturi is an award-winning poet, writer, and editor, with work appearing in many places, including On Spec, several Tesseract's anthologies, and 80, Memories and Reflections on Ursula K. Le Guin. Her two poetry collections are The Animal Bridegroom, with an introduction by Neil Gaiman, and Come Late to the Love of Birds, both from Tightrope Books. Sandra recently won second prize in the new quarterly's Nick Blanchford Occasional Verse Contest. She is also the winner of the Sunburst Award for her story, The Beautiful Gears of Dying, and ARC Magazine's Poem of the Year Award for Old Men Smoking. Welcome, Sandra. Hello, it's great to be here. So good to finally have you with us. I'm glad we're sort of wrapping up season one with the one and only. So Ooh. thanks, Sandra. And the one and only Ray Bradbury, one of my favorite authors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into our Something Wicked This Way Comes, Troy and I would like to know about your early genre loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our guests. We want to know 
how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think Ray Bradbury said it best when he said, love is the answer to everything. It's the only reason to do anything. If you don't write stories you love, you'll never make it. If you don't write stories that other people love, you'll never make it. Sandra, what was your first speculative genre memory? Um, I think probably reading uh, Del Lair's Greek Myths, which was this beautiful, giant, uh, not quite a picture book. It was for a little bit older kids. I remember it has like this sort of bright orange and yellow cover. Um, and uh, and I read and reread and reread that endlessly because I loved it so much. And uh, and then, of course, uh, lots of Grimm's fairy tales and, and Estonian fairy tales from my mother and Sri Lankan fairy tales from my father. So all of that was already kind of speculative. And then it just, uh, um, I just kept reading with other books that were for older, older kids, I guess, and eventually just became a huge genre fan. Um, what was the first speculative genre thing that you actually fell in love with and why? Um, probably maybe a tie between Narnia and uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings because I got all those books for Christmas at around the same time. I think I was about 11 and I just uh, read them and just absolutely adored them and then wrote terrible derivative, uh, you know, Tolkien stories about elves and things like that. It was just awful. But those are my were my two great loves. Oh, and uh, I have to add a third thing. Sorry, I know you said only one. Um, superhero and horror comics, which I wasn't really allowed to have. But then, if, um, yeah, and then if my uh, my I had a friend whose brother had a steamer trunk full of them, and I just devoured them. Um, and then, of course, the horror ones I gave me nightmares, but I couldn't tell my mom because then I knew that she would stop me reading them. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Sandra, for sharing. We would like to get into um, your um, all-time genre faves. Here are sure. some rapid. Yep. Okay. Uh, now, here are some rapid-fire questions about your favorite genre things. We are just looking for titles, but okay. if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. We do wish to get to talking about something wicked this way comes soon. Now, if Troy can ask these questions, that would be great. Pew pew, Sandra. What is your favorite genre movie? Aliens, original theatrical release. Not director's cut. All righty. Uh, what is your favorite genre TV show? Tie between, I'd say, Firefly and Battlestar Galactica, both old and new. All right. Now, the answer to this question does not have to come from your favorite genre TV show. Uh, can you tell us what is your favorite individual all-time episode from genre TV? Uh, I'd say uh, Clyde Bruckman's final repose from the X-Files, which is just hilarious and heartbreaking. Okay, then what about your favorite genre novel? Um, really hard to bring it out just to one. Um, maybe uh, I would say Jonathan Carroll's Outside the Dog Museum, um, maybe and Tied with Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Mm -hmm. Okay, then let's keep it difficult. How about your uh, favorite genre, shorter work? 
like there's so many um mm-hmm. uh, yeah i i'm gonna try and restrict it to just a few uh in the hills the cities clive barker um death on the nile by connie willis uh friends best man by jonathan carroll so there's three i should i have, I have tons more but i'm just gonna calm For down sure. <laughs> all right then let's go to your favorite genre author can you choose just one uh, um you know other not including bradbury of course uh Maybe, yeah, probably Jonathan Carroll. Okay, fair enough. What about your favorite genre, theme, or concept? Mm, um, probably time travel or werewolves. Time traveling werewolves. That'd be good. Uh, your favorite genre, theater, production, or musical? Oh, hands down, Into the Woods, but original Broadway cast version, not the film. Okay, this one I'm really curious about because I do know that you are a huge comic fan. Uh, what would your favorite comic book series or graphic novel of all time of be? Of all time. Um, I love Sandman. Uh, I love Mike Carey's Unwritten. Um, but probably just because of the, you know, that's what I grew up loving. Uh, Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery uh, from uh, the yeah. 70s. And uh, particularly the chameleon creature one uh which gave me the heebie-jeebies for like you know and sleepless nights for god knows how long yeah i love those gold key comics there was yes, a twilight yes, zone key. series as yeah. well yeah, uh, so good mm-hmm. let's move to your favorite genre poem and i know this will probably be difficult for you as well well i'm gonna exclude present company um mm-hmm. uh but not including you two i would probably say i'd have to say the whole book uh and sexton's transformations uh. And she's not really considered a genre poet, but that book is uh, retellings of fairy tales, and they're just just beautiful, just beautiful. So we've been looking at possibly adding a few more things to the list, but uh, we don't want to overdo it. We'll see how it goes. We have five uh, newly added categories that we are looking at, and if you yeah. uh, if you want, maybe you could select one. This is like you know the little uh, I'm your waiter, and this is the menu that <laughs> I'm presenting. Um, so, so, uh, here are the five new fave categories. All right. Hit me. All right. Uh, we have for your dining and dancing pleasure, uh, fave genre podcast. Two old farts, of course. (laughs) Fave genre audiobook. I don't listen to audiobooks because they make me impatient because I read fast. Okay. Uh, your favorite genre, documentary, mockumentary. Um, I would say uh, what we do in the shadows, uh, which is absolutely hysterical. Uh, I haven't seen the series. This is just the film I'm talking about. Okay, uh, your favorite genre, nonfiction book or essay? Uh, probably Stephen King's on writing. Um, also, Ursula Le Guin has this great um, essay called "Close Encounters: Star Wars and the Tertium Quid," uh, which is just wonderful. Oh, uh, not really genre. Blake Snyder Save the Cat. Uh, very, which, is re- which is really for screenwriting, but very useful. Right. Very nice. Now, it's funny because David and I do plan on doing uh, a full episode on on writing um, eventually. But as you started to say Stephen King, I actually thought you were going to go with Don's Macabre. Oh, but, that uh, is very good, too. Uh, yeah. But no, on writing is, uh, I mean, it's it's so practically good. Um, help, like it, It's useful, but it's also just an interesting window on his life. Favorite genre, filk, and it's not 
what I thought originally, but I've been told it's it's folk related um, genre stuff things. <laughs> uh, good one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I don't really know the world of filking well, um, so I'm not sure that I should comment. I mean, the stuff that I know well that that I like, uh, probably what Kari Morin does. Uh, she's really funny and and clever, and her songs are, are are catchy and fun. And once David and I actually get to the point where we have a Patreon account and we're charging people, we may actually have a a, a VIP room that will include favorite genre sex scene. So you can give it to us if you like. <laughs> Inappropriate. But- uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like some weird alien thing I may have seen. Oh, oh, maybe the weird one. Um, it's not even my favorite. It's just the one that sprang to mind uh, with uh, Julie Christie in uh, oh, Demon Seed. The entity? That- oh, oh yeah, right, no, right, right. Where, where the house is trying to bonk her. Oh, is that, um, that the entity with Barbara Hershey? Oh, that's a yeah. No, that's a different one. one. That's okay, a, oh, it's a different it's, one. It's another it, house, a bonking house. Yeah, Demon Seed. I think that's what it's oh, called. Demon Seed. No, that's right. Yeah, with Julie Christie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where the, then you know the house is sort of well, it's all very rapey and you know kind yeah. of unpleasant. Yeah, I guess the one is the science fiction one, which is that's Ira Levin. I think wrote the book and maybe even the screenplay for Demon Seed. Did he? I oh. believe so. And uh, and we can put up a eh, if I'm wrong over top of me. Um, and uh, I'm not sure who wrote the entity, but I've actually been really wanting to watch that one. Yeah, you know, the hunger comes to mind for sure. Oh yes, and yeah. There's a good, that's actually a good one. That's kind of a uh, yeah, you know, Catherine Deneuve, like mm. and I've yet species to see, species yeah. also. Eh. And I've yet to see the um, um, Scarlett o- Harris, Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson um, film where she's the alien. Oh, who walks skin. around naked the entire time? Yeah, yeah. It's called Under Her Skin or something. Under, like under that? the skin. Under, under that the skin, skin. Yeah, looking yeah. forward to seeing that one. Yeah, but I, from from what I understand, it's not like you know intended to be any sort of turn on. No, <laughs> no, pretty horrific. I think, yes, I think she doesn't she devour people or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, we better wrap this one up. Uh, I think, right, David. And move yeah, on to Ray. Yeah, yeah. Let's go on. So on to uh, our Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. Ray Bradbury is one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. He was born on August 22, 1920. Bradbury published his first story at the age of 18. Many of his earliest stories were originally published in classic magazines of the pulp era, while others were adapted for EC Comics, horror and sci-fi titles. His novels and story collections such as Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles, and Dandelion Wine were taught in schools for decades. Bradbury was also widely represented on film and television, either writing the screenplays for films like Moby Dick or having his work adapted by others. Bradbury's I Sing the Body Electric was the 100th episode aired on the original Twilight Zone series. During the 1980s anthology renaissance, his series, The Ray Bradbury Theatre, featured adaptations of 65 of his works in an hour-long format. The series featured stars such as William Shatner, Peter O'Toole, Jeff Goldblum, Drew Barrymore, Eugene Levy, Donald Pleasance, John Saxon. You hear that? You hear that, David? Donald Pleasance and John Saxon together. (laughs) 
Anyway, let's move on. Uh, David Ogden Steers, another one of your favorites, David. Uh, Elliot Gould, Leslie Nielsen, Shelley Duvall, and many, many others. Along with winning numerous awards throughout his life, Bradbury has had both an asteroid and a landing strip on Mars named after him. Something Wicked This Way Comes began as a short story entitled The Black Ferris in Weird Tales that was published in 1948 and later as an EC comic in 1953. That story tells of Mr. Cougar, a carny who is able to become a child when he rides his enchanted Ferris wheel backwards and the two boys who discover his secret. Bradbury later developed the story as a film script for Gene Kelly. Kelly was unable to find funding for the script, so Bradbury then worked on a prose version of Something Wicked. The book was published in 1962. This is a quote from Ray. Magic and magicians and Lon Chaney and libraries have filled my life. Libraries are the real birthing places of the universe for me. I lived in my own hometown library more than I did at home. All of that went into something wicked. Bradbury also went on to say, Above all, I did a loving thing. I wrote a peon to my father. I didn't realize it until one night in 1965. Sleepless, I got up and prowled my library, found the novel, reread certain portions, burst into tears. My father was locked into the novel, forever as the father in the book. I loved every minute of writing it. I love the book best of all the things I have ever done. I will love it and the people in it until the end of my days. The film was finally made in 1983 by director Jack Clayton, working off of a script written by Bradbury. The adult leads were perfectly cast with Jason Robards playing Charles Holloway and Jonathan Price as the demonic illustrated Mr. Dark. Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half out of four stars and wrote, it's one of the few literary adaptations I've seen in which the film not only captures the mood and tone of the novel, but also the novel's style. Bradbury's prose is a strange hybrid of craftsmanship and lyricism. This is a horror movie with elegance. Despite being well-regarded, the film did not do well upon its release. The film grossed $8.4 million at the box office against its $20 million budget. We lost Ray Bradbury on June 5th, 2012. It's been over 20 years since my first reading of Something Wicked This Way comes. Like Ray, I will love it until the end of my days. Thanks a lot, Troy. Um, Sandra, can you tell us how you were first introduced to Something Wicked This Way Comes? I was racking my brain about that, actually. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm not actually sure. I know how I was first introduced to Ray Bradbury's work, and that was when I was in um, grade eight, so I guess 13, and we did a, a, a genre section, an English class, and we were doing science fiction and mysteries, and the text we got for it is this wonderful anthology called Spacesuits and Gumshoes, which I swear literally nobody else I ever tell this to has ever heard of. But, I, you know, this, and, and to the point where I, I was... I used to think, am I hallucinating this? But I actually, and then I found a copy at a library sale that I got for a dollar. So I was thrilled. So I hadn't actually made this up. And um, one of Bradbury's stories in there uh, was, it was uh, All Summer in a Day. 
you know, about the girl who's uh, growing up on Venus, where, of course, at the time they didn't know and uh, what Venus was really like. And the assumption, because it had a cloud cover, was that it rained all the time. And, of course, she's unhappy because she's come from Earth. And it's, it's this wonderful, sad story. And um, and we had to do a project on those, uh, on the... the the stories that we had read and my what i decided to do was i wrote sequels to four science fiction stories and one of them was all summer in a day and um and i wrote it about the girl seven years later and she still doesn't get to see the sun and it's all very depressing so uh, <laughs> this may explain a lot about me and my writing um but that's bradbury and and i and i loved what i'd read and sought out other stuff that he had read and i think i uh, read Illustrated Man, and and at some point I read something Wicked This Way Comes, but I I really don't remember when, but it must have been not long after that. Um, one thing I was wondering is what is it about Ray Bradbury's writing, and, and specifically something Wicked This Way Comes, that appeals, uh, and and when you first read it, appealed to you? Well, I think that his his writing is just so beautiful um like i when i was rereading uh something wicked this way comes for today's podcast um i was struck again you know by how beautifully it's written and um like it just it, it made it it made me like sit up it made it, it's like it gave me a full body jolt just going oh there it is oh that's the perfect phrase that's the perfect phrase that one that one the next one they all are and i, I was just amazed by how beautifully he done it and also how well he draws his characters and he writes children so well he understands them um you know much and of course he's an influence for stephen king too too. And Stephen King notoriously has written children really, really well. And he's, it's like he still remembers that childhood voice. And Bradbury does too. And I think that there's um, a truth in that, an honesty in that, that you can't help but respond to, regardless of what generation you're from or how long ago it was written. It still speaks to people. There's a humanity in it that speaks to people. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into some specific examples uh, in a little bit of the, uh, you know, the the things that stood out for us in, in his prose, especially in Something Wicked. But um, there were definitely a number of times rereading this, and every time I've ever read it, where I just wanted to do the slow clap, you know? It's like, just like, it's like, it's too yes. good. It's like no yes. human should be able to pull off some of that stuff. Well, yeah, it's um, like you have to take a pause and just go, it's it's so wonderful, it's so rich. Like, I, you know, it's like, I, had, I remember, I just had to like put the book down and just like let it, and pause and just let it sink in. And yeah. then reread that one, like one section or that happened several times. And this is why uh, I probably own three different um, copies of the book through my life. And this is why every version ends up like totally highlighted, I suppose. And <laughs> yeah. like with marginalia, um, because it's just, it's all so good. Um, so let me ask you, uh, Sandra, if you were talking to somebody who wasn't familiar with Bradbury, what would you tell them in terms of, you know, why is Bradbury still relevant or, or popular? Mm. Um, and in what ways does he still speak to uh, the current generation? Well, I think that if I was trying to sort of pitch him to somebody who hadn't read his work, I don't know that I would pitch him as a science fiction writer per se, because um, so often people who don't know genre sneer at it and think that it's you know schlocky or cheap or whatever um but you know 
he's a literary writer. He really is. And, and when I was rereading something wicked this way comes to me, well, this is maybe not selling it to anybody, but it was, it was like experiencing a really long, beautiful poem um, that, that every, it was like every word had been chosen with care. And I know that, you know, Stephen King, for example, thinks that sometimes it's overwritten and a bit florid and so on, but I don't think so. I think that it, it is just perfect the way that it is. Um, and I would, I would say that if you want to know how to write and to reach people um, and to understand character, this is a good place to start. For sure. Uh, it, it has always struck me as being very close to poetry. Certainly it's prose poetry quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, I always see similarities between it and some of um, uh, Cohen's uh, passages in Beautiful Losers. Um, ex- except, you know, Cohen did one novel and, and we have so much <laughs> from Bradbury. Um, and the thing is, you know, let's say that you can um, give that there are some purple passages, but they seem to be made up. They seem to be like one tenth of what you get. And it's, it's worth it to get those nine tenths of great, beautiful writing for the few times that, that aren't so you know great. Um, I'll take it. Keep trying. I wish everybody would do that. No, it's all great. You don't know what you're saying. All of it. <laughs> 10 out of 10. 100% great. Okay. All right. There you go. 10 out of 10. Um, so let's get into your personal connection with Mr. Bradbury. Um, let's t- tell us a little bit about that. Well, it was an interesting thing um, in that uh, I, I don't know where I got up the nerve, but um, I uh, I had his address from a, a writer friend of mine and and my poetry book was coming out, and this is in 2007, uh, The Animal Bridegroom. And I had, uh, and Hallie Viegas, the publisher, said, do you know anyone who can write you an introduction? And I'm like, well, I'll ask Ray Bradbury. And she's like, yeah, go for it. And so I thought, well, that's absurd. He, he, there's no way he has time. But I thought, oh, what the hell? And I wrote to him, and and I sent him some poems, and I said, I know that, you know, this is you know, you probably don't have time, but I would love it if you could write an introduction. And um, so he didn't write back to me. He phoned me. Now, I'm so sad to this day that I was not home at the time. And we had an, we had an old answering machine, you know, where, you know, not voicemail, like you actually had to press the button to play the voice message. And I was out somewhere and my husband called me and he said, uh, Ray Bradbury just phoned you? Uh, and I just, I was just like, what? And, he, and I said, play the message, play the message. Cause I was practically hysterical. <laughs> and, and he, uh, he played it for me and it was him saying, Sandra, this is Ray Bradbury calling from Los Angeles. Your poems are very good, but there's no way for me to write an introduction. I have offers from many poets and story writers every week. So I simply can't do it. You're wonderful. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And I was just like, oh my God, ah. And here's the thing that we lived in an apartment at the time and the, the, we'd have power outages, like not constantly, but frequently enough to be irritating. And if the power went out, then the answering machine would go dead and any message on there would be erased. Oh, and no. I was, and I was just going to my husband, oh my God, you got to find a way to record it. Just like, like record it. Somehow. And this is before, you know, Androids and iPhones and so on. And so we had, he had like a little flip phone. And so 
he uh, just played the recording and recorded it on his flip phone and then turned it into an mp3 for me so luckily i do still have that uh and i'm able to you know occasionally listen to it when if i'm feeling sad then it makes me feel good about myself but you know he is such a nice man um he did end up writing to me just out of the blue and just saying you know i was just rereading your work and i just wanted to tell you again how much i enjoy it and and i thought oh what a really lovely man and and it was just it meant so much to me to have that tiny little connection and that's that's my claim to fame um oh. and of course i i was very lucky neil gaiman very kindly wrote me the introduction to the animal bridegroom so i you know i've i've nothing to complain about but uh, don't tell neil he was my second choice <laughs> <laughs> you know i have to tell you just um i guess 2 days ago i think it was I was listening to uh, a podcast at, about the Twilight Zone and, um, and, and Ray, Ray Bradbury's connections to the Twilight Zone. Um, and I heard a story that in a great way was very similar to yours. And it was um, somebody saying, you know, very much like, I got this call from Ray Bradbury and he was super supportive and like he would continue to write me and he would say how much he liked my writing. And that writer was Richard Matheson. Wow. So you wow. are in good company, yeah. my friend. You're yeah. in good company. He knows well, what he amazing. likes. Given all the work that he did and, and how busy he always was, the fact that he took time out to, to write to people who were starting out and encouraging them. I mean, that's remarkable. A lot yeah. of, a lot of, especially big name authors don't do that. I mean, quite frankly, simply because they don't have the time. Right. Um, and, uh, and Matheson actually said that that was the turning point for him. That's when he said, I'm, I, if Bradbury thinks I can do this, I'm going to try to do this. I thought that was pretty remarkable. But it also yes. just gave me sort of tingles thinking of your story. All right. We will come back to more discussion about the actual novel. But let's look for a little bit at the 1983 film by Jack Clayton. Um, I guess we've all had a chance to see that recently. And we mm -hmm. probably all saw it originally. Uh, any thoughts, you know, guys? Well, I will say this. Um, as I was watching it, I I honestly don't know if I did see it back then because I could have sworn that I had, but none of it really felt familiar to me. I mean, I had a, this, is, this is like when I thought that I had read Peter Straub's ghost story and I was absolutely convinced that I'd read it. And as I was rereading it, I went, I don't think I've ever read this book. Um, you know, because it's like something is in, is in popular culture or the collective consciousness and you just right. absorb some of it and it feels like you've read it or, or yes. seen the film and then you see it and you're like, maybe I haven't. So I am not entirely sure. I feel yeah. like I must have when it came out, but maybe not. Well, I still find that because I've seen both, I've created this sort of hodgepodge version in mm -hmm. my brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, like even doing my reread, there were parts in the last third of the book that I had sort of forgotten about. Um, yeah, same here. Because I have the images of like uh, Jonathan Price in the library and whatnot. Well, hey, I'll tell you what, I have a couple of notes and if you guys want to comment on them or whatever, uh, while I was watching, I just, you know, was taking some notes and immediately thought great opening sequence with the approaching train and the theme by James Horner.
a thought on that. Yes, yes. If I can interject. As I was watching that, I'm like, oh my goodness. This is the Imperial March Darth Vader <laughs> yes, game. Yes, me too. And I just went, no way. And it's because it's, it's very close. It it's is. very close. And it's got those nice sort of like little yeah. swirly yeah. elements bum, 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 with bum, it. Bum, but yes, bum. that's what's yeah. happening. Um, <laughs> although I was surprised to find out that uh, Horner was not the original composer for the show. Originally, uh, it was by Georges Delarue. Um, and if you watch the... Um, the trailer that comes with the DVD, which David and I ha- happen to see, um, you can hear some of the music and it's nowhere near as good. It would have been, it would have been really, I think a little iffy had they mm-hmm. gone with that music. Anyway, um, you can hear it there. Um, but yeah, Disney heard the music and they were like, Oh no, this, this will not do. Um, <laughs> so they had it rescored. And there was a few other things that Disney had changed. Um, including um, there's a, the scene with the spiders um, and David and I came across this where uh, originally there was a, a scene shot where this giant hand sort of almost like King Kong's hand, you know, <laughs> or grabs Feyre is supposed to be uh, Mr. Dark's hand, the illustrated man. Uh, it comes through the window of both of the boys and grabs them. And supposedly it looked pretty much like the, the 19, I guess that's 33 King Kong. Uh, you know, not a, that's not a great moment for that oh, film. It's a really dear. great film, but the, the hand bit grabbing is not so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I wondered actually, uh, have you guys seen WandaVision? Yes, I've seen it. Okay, uh, well, the, it's funny that that's. I'm dying to know if the town, that town square, is the same one that was used in in Wandavision oh. with the gazebo, and I mean, it was probably a fairly common set piece. But. Yeah, maybe, but uh, you know, let's assume that they did it on purpose, and it's a nod to that. <laughs> yes, yeah. So toffees out there—that's what we call our fans, the toffees. Mm-hmm. Toffees, if you have an answer to that, if you can confirm or deny if that's the uh, the in Greentown, if it's the same setting that is used in Wandavision, please let us know. Um, and came across this tidbit that the boys who played uh, Will and Jim—they had actually the opposite hair color is what they ended up with in the film because the boy that ended up playing will originally tried out for Jim and Bradbury liked him so much. He wanted to switch him. So the boy with dark hair ended up getting peroxide blonde and the blonde haired boy ended up getting dyed brunette. Oh, that's too funny. Yeah. Okay. So a quick, a quickie here, a quick little sidebar. Um, I wanted to know from you guys, I love the library in the book and in the film. Um, and I, I just like, I want to go to there. I, I want to go to that library. Um, so what are some of your favorite all-time libraries that you've been to? Mine would be like uh, the uh, Fifth Avenue and 34th uh, in New York City with the, the, uh, New, the York yeah. Yeah. New York Public Library. Yeah. New York Public Library. Yeah. Same for me. Um, hmm. Ghostbusters was shot there. A lot of Ghostbusters. Yeah. Trying to think. British Museum as well in London, which is just crazy. They have their treasures room, which has the uh, Gutenberg Bible, the Magna Mm -hmm. Carta, Shakespeare folios, uh, as well as Beatle lyrics. It's just, it's just crazy in there. And you know what? I love the Hardhouse Library. Technically it's really just a reading room. Yes. 
But yes, actually, that's really good. I love that place too. Like it's small, but it's got all the the requirements of libraries that it's old wood and and creaky leather chairs and sofas bay and, windows yeah and huge view. old tables and just oh yeah i love now, that now david you know your libraries so uh, do you have any favorite libraries well it might also be the heart house one um i haven't traveled that far and haven't gone to as many libraries i mean the the, the, the best library that i've ever been in doesn't exist um it's it's uh what i call the perfect library if i can segue into that poem yes that's um, that's the best that's just one of the most beautiful poems ever mm -hmm. i love that so much um the other library might be the one that was in doctor who um because there was a a episode in the new series series that started with uh christopher eccleston uh, a couple years in I, i think it may have been called the library um, that was very good. I always like it when libraries appear in film, especially genre film, like The mm. Mummy, um, where oh, they, yes. they have all the stacks falling. Yes, yes. Oh, um, there's a, a wonderful library in one of Richard Brodigan's books. Um, I can't remember oh. which now. Uh, which uh, Maybe it's in The Abortion. Uh, right. I can't remember. But it's uh, it's a library in which people write books like by hand and then come and put them on the shelves, you know, I got, and, and, and I just, I love the idea of that so much. And, and, um, in, in film or TV rather, uh, in supernatural, there's of course the, I mean, they don't call it a library, but it, but it's this giant room in the void kind of where the book of everybody's life is. Um, and I love the idea of that as well. And I mean, the Library of Parliament in Ottawa is is quite beautiful, and that's right. And yeah. like, oh, really, I said that's right. Sorry. <laughs> any any nice. any British any British <laughs> library in an old building, like, oh, the Bodleian, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just fan- like, I'm not a big fan of modern libraries. I want them to be oh. in old buildings and yes. with you know squashy chairs and and to feel comfortable and to fe- smell faintly and mustily of books and you know that's yeah. the stuff that i love yeah i threw in uh, the university college uh library in dublin which um a lot Ooh, of ulysses yeah. was written in and i think there are scenes there too so back to well, the there's library. another one if mm-hmm. i can jump in was the the, the series the librarians if I oh yeah that. yeah yeah, the yeah, sort of like an adventure Indiana Jonesy kind of thing, but with librarians. Exactly. Um, that was a, a series uh, that uh, did have Rebecca Romaine and Lindy Booth, John Larroquette, Noah Wiley. Noah Wiley, yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember. Well, as as uh, Rachel Wise said in in uh, the Mummy, I love that bit when she's like, I. A librarian. <laughs> so let's go back to uh, the library in Greentown. Um, two, well, two of my favorite scenes from the film, but also really in almost any genre film, are from this film. And uh, the one is, first of all, with uh, where Jason Robards comes to find Will. Uh, while the uh, parade and I guess slash funeral procession is happening. Um, and uh, and Robards and Price sort of face each other for the first time. 
And just that, that moment on film of these two together, um, it's great. It gives me chills just thinking about it. Uh, what did you guys think of that scene? Oh, I love that too. But I, I love even like the, the, I mean, before that, just the small touches, like there's a just a lovely little bit where, because uh, this is like the New York Public Library writ small, because it has right. the stone lions in front too, like much smaller ones, of course. And when Robards is leaving the library, he pats one on the head and you get the feeling that he that's his routine every day. You know, that it, whenever he leaves, he pats one of the lions on the head. And yeah. I just, I love the, the touch of that. But yes, the confrontation, you know, the you know, uh, again, again, in a library, like it sounds so, um, n- well, nerdy, wonderfully nerdy, you know, and this, this isn't like, you know, Iron Man, you know, versus Captain America, you know, big right. explosions and everything. This is just, you know, in a small town in a, in a library, but still it's good and evil and the great questions of the time. That's right. And what can be more blasphemous than being in a library and and defacing a book oh i know i know Hor- the, the the shock of that you tell me where the boys are hiding and i can make you young again i could turn your years back for you to let's say 30 and speak but you've missed it growing Gone. 31. 32. 32. Year of a man's prime. Loved by many women. You might still learn to swim. 32. Going. Gone. 33. 34. 35. 35. Oh, 35. Time to father a family. Build a fortune. 35, a year when you could run up the stairs without panting for breath. 35, gone. 36, 37, where are they? 38, here, your heart. Here, my count. 39, now. 39, a fine year, still young. 39, Oh, oh, 40, 40, and here your old, old heart. Dad, no, don't listen! Uh, David, what do you think about the confrontation scene? Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, Jonathan Price, now, I don't, he, I thought he was fairly new on the scene, because he's fairly young in that role. Yeah, really and I don't know from, from other movies, like, he did a lot after yeah. that. But he Brazil, so good. very famously. Yeah Brazil, yeah, Brazil certainly made made a name for him. For and sure. that's still three years off, you know, when you mm-hmm. think of that. But it's amazing. This may have led to that, like like his, how yeah. well he did in this film, even though the film didn't do that well. They could have said, oh, this is the perfect actor for, for them to cast in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Another great sort of speculative kind of odd film. Mm-hmm. But this, his portrayal, it's so sinister and it's just so wonderful. So, David, apparently something wicked did come our way. The episode has gone long, and we have to split the episode into two parts. So join us next time for Something Wicked This Way Comes Part 2 with special guest Sandra Kasturi. This is Troy Harkin. And this is David Klink. And this has been Two Old Farts.
talk sci-fi. Mm-hmm.